The Cleverness of Sap, Misconceptions about Redshift, Justice in Physics, and Universal Design for Learning. We've got a lot to talk about today on Physics Alive. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good physics day, everyone. I've been meaning to do an episode like this for quite some time, and I know I've threatened it a few times in previous episodes. So what I've done here is I've got a pile of papers in front of me. I'm going to run them into the microphone and crinkle them so you can tell I have paper here. But what I've done is opened up the May 2021 Journal of the Physics Teacher, and I selected three articles that I wanted to read and report on. There isn't a whole lot of rhyme or reason about the ones that I decided to pick out. I just picked some articles that I thought looked interesting to me and that I would like to report on and that seemed like they would be a good fit for this podcast in so much as they are teaching ideas that you can bring into the classroom, whether it's actually curriculum ideas and lessons that you can bring in, or whether it's more broadly about a type of curriculum, about a, a broader way to learn and research on that. So those were kind of my, my guiding pieces, but of course there are many excellent articles in each month of the physics teacher. So I'm not going to be able to report on all of them, but I, I hope that everyone enjoys uh, what I'm able to do here by taking a look through these and summarizing them. You may recall that in my introduction, I actually mentioned four different topics. So I've picked out three papers and the fourth one is actually going to be looking at uh, a little a little short editorial that was written about a new column that is going to be starting in the physics teacher. But without further ado, let's just get right into this. And I'm going to apologize up front for any mispronunciation of names. I will simply do my best in my dreadful American accent. So the first paper is called SAP is Clever. SAP Ascent for undergraduates investigated with an artificial tree. The first author on this paper is Sergio Gonzalez Camara from the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid in Madrid, Spain. So I have the paper in front of me and it is absolutely covered in yellow, green, and orange highlighter. So much highlighter that I think my wife would be absolutely proud. Uh, she is a master of highlighting articles. It's not something that I've ever done too much of, but this this one is covered. And I'm going to try to pick out the highlights from from the highlighting that I've done. So the question that they want to answer in this paper is how could trees raise the sap to heights up to 100 meters? And this actually reminds me of the conversation I had with Don Meredith back in episode 16 and um, some of the research studies she's been uh, doing with uh, folks down at the University of Maryland. And they were looking at exactly this question. So um, since this was one that was brought up before and thought it was an interesting question, I wanted to, to bring this back and see what these, these authors had to say. So in this article, they present a simple experimental setup that provides a direct visualization and quantification of the water ascent process against gravity. They first start by talking about the mechanisms of ascension of SAP. So we first have to get a sense of that to figure out, well, what is this model that we're gonna build? 
And they say that trees are able to transport huge amounts of sap, more than a thousand liters a day, from the roots to the leaves to perform the photosynthesis process. And it's been sort of a long question about how is this sap ascent able to happen? And uh, the, the leading theory on this right now is named the tension adhesion cohesion theory. When students are asked about how sap is raised up trees, they don't really have a clear idea of the physics fundamentals. One of their most common answers is that there must be a pressure difference of some sort that causes it. Some argue that the tree has some type of mechanism similar to a vacuum pump. However, a very quick calculation shows that you can only lift water to about 10 meters with this mechanism. Another one that is mentioned is ascension by osmosis. So when calculations are done uh, with standard concentration gradients, uh, one can find that uh, even in very high trees, you can only get sap to rise by about 50 meters, which isn't going to get us up to the 100 meters that we want. And the most habitual answer is that the ascension is provided by capillarity. Uh, once again, looking at calculations, uh, from capillary forces, one can find that uh, a sap column can only be supported around 10 meters or less. So all three of these options is not getting us to, to the height that we need. So this tension adhesion cohesion theory is the most accepted theory to solve this conundrum and has been supported by extensive experimental evidence. But it's a complicated theory because of many different involved mechanisms. But one of the most important is not a push from below, but it's a pull from above. And it's this idea of evaporation of sap from the stoma of the leaves. So solar radiation provides energy to evaporate the sap. And then upon that evaporation, there's a curvature in the sap meniscus and capillarity forces that act on the cell wall boundary. So when the water evaporates, when the sap evaporates out of the leaves, there is there is basically a, a pulling upward that occurs. So the entire sap column is pulled up the tree and there is an enormous pressure difference that is established. So it's really these cohesive forces that sustain the whole sap column due to the strength of the hydrogen bond between the water molecules. So I really like the beginning of this paper because it goes into many of the thoughts that students have about how this mechanism works, which are all partially true. There's, there's nothing wrong with those explanations, but they don't go all the way. So it's a great starting point for a conversation because many students will have thoughts about this and they'll be able to get those thoughts out, get those ideas on paper or on whiteboards. And then we can start to dig into uh, to maybe the most influential mechanism, which is a mechanism that they, they hadn't thought of. But the great thing is there's an experiment to go along with this. So in, in this paper, they present an artificial tree that is able to pull water up in an, in an analogous way uh, that a real tree does with sap. So definitely would encourage you to take a look at the paper to see what this artificial tree looks like. I uh, may not be able to do it as much just, justice just talking about it. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about some of the different elements of it. So this artificial tree has um, to represent the xylem of the plant that is represented by a transparent plastic tube. So they just get tubing that has a, a thickness and a length that represents tree height. Then the tube is attached to a holder that 
holds a filter, and this filter represents the leaf. Uh, the paper describes where they get these filters from and uh, different aspects of them. So the filter has a particular di diameter, has a particular porosity, uh, different pore diameters. So they're able to simulate uh, the size of the stoma, the size of the leaf with these filters that they use. And then in order to simulate the soil, a plastic vessel with water is used because sap is essentially water. Uh, and, and then that is what's going to be drawn up. So this setup now allows for the observation of different phenomena occurring during the transport of water. So we can look at the idea of, of transpiration. We get this evaporation of the water. So you can study how much water is lost over a set number of days. And you can see that the water is pulled up the column. And they were able to easily visualize this just by tinting the water uh, a little bit blue so that you could, you could see the water being pulled up. But they could also take a look at some other parameters such as temperature, humidity, air flux. Uh, so they could investigate the effect of temperature on transpiration rate by simply putting a small heater next to their tree. Uh, they could also use a humidifier to affect the, the rates of humidity. And they can also study how the stability of the sap column was such a critical point for this cohesion-adhesion tension theory. So the water being under a metastable state cannot have bubbles growing in the sap column because if bubbles would grow, then uh, a cavitation process will occur that will uh, lead to the collapse of the column. So they were able to study different heights and different for, for their trees to find out how the, the taller trees were not able to maintain that, that metastable column uh, for, for quite as long and, and that tree was not able to be supported, whereas uh, a shorter tree uh, would be able to be supported. And they could also see that if the, if the tube of water was not filled completely with water first and that there were air bubbles in there, this column wouldn't even be supported. So right off the bat, if you were not able to uh, create a perfectly water-filled tube, you wouldn't even be able to get this suspension at all. So in conclusion, the artificial tree provides an excellent framework to explain the mechanism of sap ascent. This is from their, their conclusion statements in the paper. Uh, the versatility of the artificial tree enables the investigation of the crucial cavitation process as well as studying some of the many influential factors that, that lead to uh, sap rising uh, to, to different heights. I think this could be a great paper to look at and consider building this, this apparatus if you have, uh, particularly if you have a class of biology majors. So teaching intro physics for the life sciences, maybe more the biology aspect rather than the, the, the medicine aspect. Uh, I think this could be a great addition or maybe a final piece to a fluids unit after you've talked about the many different mechanisms that this could be a great case study to wrap things up with to to bring in all of the many pieces that uh, you've been you've been that students have been learning about uh, throughout that unit. So once again, the title of the paper is Sap is Clever. I think I, I missed the question mark that was associated with that the first time I read it. SAP is clever. SAP Ascent for undergraduates investigated with an artificial tree. So I'll provide the link in the show notes to go find this paper. Uh, you do need to have, I believe, uh, a subscription to the, the physics teacher um, through your, your college or your school. Uh, if not, uh, I guess I would encourage reaching out to the authors and maybe they could provide a copy of the paper for you. All right, one done. Let's go to a second paper. So the second one is called Three Redshifts, Doppler, Cosmological, and Gravitational. And the author for this paper is Silvia Simeonato from Frederick Schiller University of Jena, Germany. 
So this paper is looking at the redshift and the many misconceptions that are around the redshift. Red and that's that's a major, There's I would say there's two major parts to this paper. There's first, it's looking at where what are the different causes of redshifts that are interesting to study uh, in phenomena around us. And then what are some of these misconceptions that the students have? And in fact, that's, that's where this paper begins with in the introduction. The author shares that these common misconceptions that are being treated in the paper arose from direct experience and discussion with colleagues in the field. The author states that one misconception that needs to be overcome is that each spectral line is supposedly shifted into the red part of the spectrum and not, as it is correct, simply in the direction of an increased wavelength. So right off the bat, there is there is something that I wouldn't have even thought that students were thinking because I really haven't probed into it. Uh, of course, the, I, the the word redshift seems to imply that everything is shifted towards red. Uh, as, as we know in physics, that's not the case. Everything is shifted towards a longer wavelength. And we understand that. Uh, and that's what, that, what redshift is implying is sort of from blue towards red uh, is what we mean. But for somebody just learning these concepts, that is, that is not immediately evident whatsoever. Another misconception that sometimes emerges and should be confronted is that redshift means that the spectral lines would all be shifted by the same amount towards the larger wavelengths. Now, this is something that we would need to look into the mathematics a little bit more. I, I guess there, there can be this thought that, well, everything will shift by 20 nanometers, for instance, let's just, just to pick a number. So a 400 nanometer wavelength gets shifted to 420, a 600 nanometer wavelength gets shifted to 620. And now this one's a little bit, a bit more subtle uh, and definitely requires uh, studying the, the, the mathematics a little bit more. And this paper does go into to showing the, the mathematics of this, but that's a piece that is, is also incorrectly thought of by students. Another important aspect to take into account when considering the redshift is that time intervals between signals at their detection compared to those at emission are different. Now, I have to say that sentence, the first time I read it, uh, pretty much went over my head uh, because what we're starting to look at here is actually a gravitational redshift. And that's what the author is getting with that. And that is a redshift that I um, am a little bit less familiar with. So after sharing these misconceptions in the introduction, uh, the author goes on to start talking about, well, why are spectral lines shifted? And there's a summary here that we can distinguish three different types of redshifts and the related phenomena. So one is the Doppler redshift as a consequence of the Doppler effect. Another is the cosmological redshift that is caused by the expansion of the universe. And a third is the gravitational redshift due to a variable strength of the gravitational potential between source and detector. So again, this, this third one is, is one that I was definitely a little bit less familiar with. Now, just kind of up front, I, I'm seeing that where I would love to, to bring in some of these topics. I, I taught a, a course. It was, it was a modern physics course that I, I revamped for basically non-physics majors. And it was a course I ended up calling Revolutions of, the, of 20th Century Physics. I think I'd probably change the title now so I could talk about 20th and 21st century physics. But uh, I, I spent a, a unit looking at, at cosmology uh, and being able to, to understand an idea of, of a Big Bang and an expanding universe and where those ideas came from and, and to look at uh, the, the studies that went into that originally. So being able to better understand what my students are thinking and, and where 
and where they have misconceptions, preconceptions, resources, whatever kind of language we want to frame around that. And I mean, that reminds me of another episode that I've, I've wanted to really learn about this resources framework quite a bit more. Um, but but this, this article refers to misconceptions and, and I'm fine referring to it as those. Uh, so anyway, getting a sense of these, what our students are thinking beforehand will allow us to kind of target our discussions a little bit to be able to, to uncover those, those thoughts and be able to show it's like this, this is what we really need to be thinking about. One of the things that I really like about this paper is that it doesn't just assume that we know everything about Redshift uh, because I would say it's not really a topic that's common in all of the introductory classes. Yes, the Doppler Redshift uh, may well be, but in going into cosmological redshift and certainly gravitational redshift, that was that was a piece where where I learned quite a bit from this this paper as well, and I realized I have <laughs> quite a bit more to learn to understand that better. So the, the paper spends some time looking at each of those three types of redshifts and the characteristic mathematics that go with them, and then the author provides some examples of some of these. So there are some great figures uh, showing some of the graphs that would go well uh, with with thinking about some of those misconceptions. Uh, but the author provides um, from the literature as well as online that you can find some of these spectra, such as the, the Quasar 3C273 and a specific redshift. And uh, looking at the emission spectrum and an absorption spectrum of the star Vega, and that you can see some of this data. So the author provides uh, some of those graphs and examples in the paper. They also provide some samples of exercises that you can bring into the classroom. So one of them to look at how spectral lines are shifted. They provide data for a spectrum of the elliptical galaxy M32, so a satellite galaxy of the Andromeda Nebula, M31. And they provide some data around that so that we can, uh, in our classes, do some calculations around how much should the wavelength be shifted and when, what is that related to. Uh, for the gravitational redshift, there are also some uh, interesting examples from cosmology where you see it in light curves of type 1a supernova or in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And the, the author provides some detailed explanation about these examples and how to use them in the classroom uh, as exercises in part of the online supplemental materials. So in wrapping up this paper, uh, it does a great job of showing three different types of redshift and describing the, the misconceptions that students may have about redshift and some of the examples that we can use in class to be able to show this is mathematically how we need to think about it. This is what we can see visually from the data. So again, the title of the paper is Three Redshifts, Doppler, Cosmological, and Gravitational. The next paper I want to talk about is not actually a paper. It's an introduction to a new column that is going to appear in the physics teacher. And it's called Just Physics. Or actually, there's a question mark there, Just Physics. So Just Physics aims to continue, expand, and deepen the conversation that focuses on two questions. What does it mean to think beyond just physics? Specifically, to think about physics and physics education in the context of the social and political realities of the world. And another question is, what constitutes just physics, i.e., what does physics for justice look like? These questions that are posed above urge us to look at the problems of representation, inequities, and lack of inclusivity in physics as issues of justice. This, in turn, forces us to think about the structures of power, privilege, dominance, and oppression involved in the practice of physics and in physics education. 
So to continue quoting the, the authors of this, in Just Physics, we will dive into these issues, seeking to critically think about diversity programs, classroom and curricular interventions, and societal impacts of physics and its products, while continuing to examine and re-examine our collective goals for justice. We hope to bring in a diverse array of voices to speak on these topics, share stories and experiences, discuss frameworks for thinking about justice in physics and physics education, and provide context and viewpoints from other disciplines of study. So I don't think I mentioned this yet, but the column editors for this new column, Just Physics, uh, are Deepak Iyer from Bucknell University and Shannon Wachowski from Wyoming Department of Education. So their goal is to build a community that will ask questions of one another, as well as share stories, ideas, and lessons learned with one another. And most importantly, they hope to build a supportive community of practitioners that acts collectively toward a common goal, each in their own unique ways. So I imagine this column is going to be beginning in the, in the new academic year. And as a way to foster communication and to help get a sense of the DEI and justice issues that are on uh, the readers' minds, uh, they want to start building this community and they would appreciate your participation in a short survey. So if you go to this editorial in the May 2021 physics teacher, you can get access to the QR code that they provide. And you can take this short survey uh, in order to, to let them know what, what issues you care about, what, what things that you think are important, uh, or to maybe uh, to, to volunteer to write uh, a segment for this editorial. Okay, we're coming into the home stretch here. One last paper that I want to talk about. And it's going to be coming back to a topic that's come up a few times in some of these episodes of Physics Alive, which is the scale-up physics curriculum, and also a topic that hasn't come up yet, which is universal design for learning. This final paper that I'd like to talk about is titled Using Universal Design for Learning to Support Students with Disabilities in a Scale-Up Physics Course. The first author of the paper is Wesley James from the Department of Physics at the University of Central Florida, but the paper really focuses on the journey of the second author of the paper, James Cooney, the journey of the training that he received around universal design for learning, and how he brought that into his course, the lessons that he learned along the way, the changes that he made, and the impact that they are showing. The paper begins with a, a brief summary of what it means to have a disability. What are the common disabilities that we may see in the classroom? And then how universal design for learning can address and support these students. So the paper begins by saying approximately 10% of post-secondary STEM students identify with one or more disabilities. And disabilities under the umbrella of executive function disorders are the most common. There are three main areas of executive function, working memory, flexible thinking, and inhibitory controls. Executive function is responsible for skills such as paying attention, organizing, planning, and prioritizing, starting tasks and maintaining focus, regulating emotions, and self-monitoring. Executive function issues can be markers for diagnoses such as attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, autism, and other specific learning disabilities. And the authors state that little work has documented how to support students with executive function disorders in physics courses. Now, the Universal Design for Learning, UDL, framework provides guidelines and checkpoints to aid instructors in considering and supporting the variation in students' needs, abilities, and interests. So instructors who use UDL to identify barriers and provide support for executive function will also likely provide support to students without diagnosed executive function disorders as well. And I think we've all begun to see over these last number of years 
more and more students that are coming in with accommodations. So usually this is how it's brought to my attention, where I'll get the emails at the beginning of the semester that this handful of students has accommodations for this and this. And I've begun to see more and more students each year with these accommodations. And I'll have to say that this has all felt very new for me. I haven't quite understood really why these accommodations were, were, were pieces that were being brought to my attention. So this paper has been very impactful for me in, in gaining a better appreciation, a better sense for where these accommodations are coming from, for the diagnoses that were kind of behind some of these challenges that students are experiencing in things such as paying attention and organizing and planning. The paper provides the, a, a guiding framework that has been provided by the Center for Applied Special Technology. And there are three general principles which are broken into nine guidelines, which are further broken into 31 checkpoints for consideration. And I'm not gonna go through all of those, but I do at least want to say what the three guiding principles are. Provide, mean, uh, provide multiple means of representation, provide multiple means of action and expression, and provide multiple means of engagement. So how can we go about doing this in our classroom? Well, that's the goal of this paper, the goal of this study. It's to support James Cooney in his class in bringing universal design for learning ideas into his classroom and to model the process of using UDL to make courses more inclusive. So Cooney was a participant in Project Access, which has a lot of C's and S's adapting collaborative classrooms to equally support science students. Cooney participated in workshops to prepare for implementing UDL aligned practices focused on supporting students with executive function disorders. The workshop included an introduction to UDL, executive function disorders, and information about how to apply UDL to STEM courses. In this case, the STEM course that these principals were applied to was Cooney's first semester algebra-based scale-up mode introductory physics course. So scale-up is already moving in the right direction, combining lecture, lab, and recitation activities into one collaborative classroom. So you might think that already some of these principles that UDL is going for may be automatically included, but what was learned was that that wasn't enough, that there is still more intention that could be made. So there's a lot of great things in a scale-up curriculum, but there can still be a lot more attention and focus on supporting students that have these disabilities. So the first step they took was identifying practices to implement. So through course observations, they identified that barriers to learning and expressing understanding included course content being unavailable or challenging for students to access outside of class and course structures and goals not being clearly expressed for students. And finally, students identified the course was lacking in supports for how to prepare for assessments. The authors focus on three implemented practices. Accessibility of course material, highlighting class structure and important concepts, and supporting test preparation. So the first of these was course structure and addressing this lack of digital access to an organization of course materials. So this includes things like slideshow presentations, worked out problems, demonstrations. And while some of these were available online, demos and in-class problem solving sessions were not. 
So he began to record in-class demos and take pictures of problem solutions to allow students to access these resources outside of class. And to support students in locating and accessing the content, uh, Cooney also organized these files in their learning management system. The second implemented practice was highlighting class structure and important concepts. So Cooney recognized that his course lacked clarity about the content being covered and the structure of each class period. Now, this is something I've noticed in the modeling curriculum as well. And although there actually is a lot of structure to the modeling curriculum, I found that because there's there's an exploration piece that's really important with it, that I often didn't say upfront exactly what we were going to be doing in class. And I have gotten feedback over, over the years when I was in the modeling curriculum that there were some students who would really appreciate having some kind of outline of what was coming. And so I was beginning to get better at that. I, I think in that curriculum, I still had a lot more work to do. Uh, but there's a sense that, you know, with active learning, uh, there can be kind of so much going on in class and, you know, with, with a lecture, there, there's a focus. Uh, you're, there's, there can be PowerPoint slides, there, there is a list, there's things that are being written down on the board step by step. So in that sense, lecture provides this focus. But active learning, it, could be, it can be easy to sort of fall into, oh, let's do this, this activity and let's do this one and then let's do this one. And maybe there isn't that, that guiding hierarchy. And, and I can see that what's happening here is that there needs to be some sort of guide. There needs to be some kind of way to show students that this is the process that's being uh, put forward. And here are the resources that you can use to help you kind of piece those things together as well. So Cooney began starting class with an introductory slide with the day's schedule, tasks, and the main concepts to be covered. And after he started doing that, students began to express how these slides supported them in monitoring their learning in and out of class. Now, an interesting point that the authors of the paper brought up was that the scale-up literature, in fact, encourages supporting students in monitoring their practice. And they mentioned that instructors often make many modifications as they transition from lecture to scale-up courses. And they might often overlook these uh, supporting structures that the, the full curriculum would put into place. So working with instructors to adopt a UDL mindset can help to reemphasize course features that may have been neglected originally. Finally, the last implemented practice is supporting test preparation. And, you know, this is something that I've heard over the years in, in my classes and that I've heard about many instructors along the way. So I think this is something that we can all learn from. How do we help support students to, for, for taking tests. And Cooney's students were specifying that they really wanted to have practice tests. The students' request for practice tests revealed that they had difficulties in choosing which book problems to study. So there was a simple response to this request. Cooney shared exams that he had used in previous years. And this is exactly something that I've tried in the past as well. You know, when my students said, we, we don't feel like the problems that you assign in the workbook that you give us uh, properly prepare us for the types of questions we're going to see the, on the exams. Now, I think this is a common complaint in many a physics class because in many other courses, students can possibly get away with memorizing information and just so-called regurgitating it on the exam. And in physics, that doesn't work because in physics, there are general principles that you are going to apply to different types of problems. 
or I should say the same type of problem, but to a different situation. And as instructors, we don't want to ask a student the same problem that was in the homework assignment and just change a couple of numbers. We might do a few of those just to see that they can do those types of problems. But really, we're interested in seeing the students apply what they've learned to new situations. And of course, to be able to do that, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. That's what makes physics very challenging for students. So they need as much practice doing that as possible. And it might be true that on exams, we instructors get well, maybe a little too clever sometimes. We, we come up with this great example of a problem that maybe is a little bit more outside of the realm that students are used to. I, I know I was guilty of that. So I, I did exactly what Cooney did. I began to share some of the problems I had on previous exams, ones that maybe didn't work quite as well and I wasn't interested in using again. So I said, oh, I'm going to put those in the student workbook. And I'll say, I asked this problem on an exam last year or two years ago. This is the type of thinking I'm going to expect you to do. And look, you see how this problem is not exactly like the other problems you worked on, but here are the, the principles that are behind it. Here is how the framework that you have learned in these last couple of units is going to help you solve a problem like this. And they'll get some practice solving exam style and exam challenging questions. And the students were indeed appreciative of having those previous exam problems being shown to them. And pretty much as soon as I started doing that, that, that complaint was gone. I never heard about the, the students not feeling like they were prepared for exams. Now they might say the exams are too hard because we see problems that we haven't seen before. But you know, as physics instructors, we have to be okay with that. Um, as long as what we're doing is helping to support students in learning how to approach new and challenging types of questions. And maybe not everybody's going to be successful with that. And so they're not going to be too happy about, about tests that ask for that. But I, I think we do need to stand behind that that's what we're looking for in physics. So as long as we are giving the right support, then also recognizing that not everybody is going to get it to the same level. But getting back to the paper, I mean, actually, that's pretty much it. Though Those were the three big pieces. The authors provide a, a summary table towards the end of the paper. And just to kind of go through a, a rundown of what were the major things that they, they changed. So demo, demos recorded and uploaded. In-class problems scanned and uploaded. And supporting this by organizing the information in folders for each week. Intro slides that identified topics to be covered in class an interest slide that identified structure of a class session, and tests used in previous years to provide students with practice. And those were the big main pieces that were applied and they were beginning to have some impacts. Now on the table, there are also some additional recommendations that align with UDL checkpoints. So, so more pieces that can be added, but if we're gonna be starting to make these changes to our classes, it's definitely too much to ask for a complete overhaul and do everything all at once. You know, th this, is, this is trial and error. This is learning what works and doesn't work for our particular students that we have at our particular universities or our high schools. It just can't be done overnight. We have a lot to learn ourselves. So to finish this paper up, I want to just read a small section from their conclusion. We highlight the experience of one instructor implementing UDL-aligned practices to motivate other instructors to begin this journey. It is easy to feel overwhelmed by the task of removing all of the barriers from one's course and providing seamless access to students of all needs, abilities, and interests. But as demonstrated by this case, small, concrete steps can support students' learning. This is the beginning of an iterative process of reflection and implementation. A critical component of this process is adopting a mindset that recognizes the variability of learners. 
I really like the approach that these authors took to make this into a case study, to make this into a story. Because if we can follow the story of this one individual, this James Cooney from the University of Central Florida, if we can follow his journey, the the knowledge that he gained, what he learned from workshops, and, and seeing that there's sometimes just small changes that we can make along the way that can have that can have big impacts that can help students to feel recognized and included and and to know that the teachers are there to support these many different learning styles. I really like this this approach of this story that we are taken through and to see the lessons that this instructor learned and that we are learning along the way with him and and recognizing that all these ideas are not just common knowledge, that the world is changing around us, that we're understanding more and more about these these disabilities, if we even want to call them disabilities, or, or if they're just different ways of people processing information, and how can we help support those different people? Phew, there we go. Three papers and one new column. And I'm curious what you thought of this episode. I'm not sure what I think of it yet. It was it was actually kind of really fun doing this. I knowing I was going to talk about these papers, I paid a lot of attention to them. Uh, you know, I read them with a very critical eye, and as I said at the beginning of the episode, I had my highlighter out and I was I was making lots of highlights because those were the sections that I wanted to be able to say something about during the episode. And you know, this episode was challenging for me because I'm not the person who's done that research. You know, when I talk to guests with interviews, they're the ones doing the work. You know, I'll, I'll read their work and I'll ask them questions about it and then they can talk about it. But meanwhile, when I'm reporting on the papers, I have, I'm not the one who's done that. So I need to pay a lot closer attention to, to what I'm reading and, and try to be knowledgeable as I speak about it. So I hope I succeeded. Uh, I, I hope I was able to pick out some interesting papers that you found valuable and that my summaries of them were valuable. Let me know what you think. Send me an email at brad at physicsalive.com. I would love to hear your feedback. Did you like this? Would you like to see more episodes like this? Uh, would you like me to say a little bit more about each paper? Could I say uh, a little bit less about each paper? Maybe a lot less. Should I, I summarize more articles uh, and do each summary a little bit shorter? Or should I just focus on one paper for an episode? Or what is it that you were thinking about this? I would definitely love to hear you, your feedback. You know, this was the, the first of these that I've done and, and I know I can probably do it a lot smoother and I can make a lot of changes to this to, to make it something that, that, that you as my audience would be really interested in listening to. And, you know, this is something that, that I really care about. You know, I, you know I, I see all of these articles come out each month in the American Journal of Physics and the Physics Teacher. And then there's other journals of, of, of science education and, and of course, the, the, the Physical Review, uh, PER journal. So there are so many papers out there. And I definitely don't have time to read them all. But uh, here, here is a venue for, for maybe if you experience the same thing, getting to getting to learn a little bit more about some of those papers. So I could keep prattling on about this, but um, please reach out to me. Let me know what you thought and, and what you might like to see in future episodes that are kind of like this. Uh, again, my email is brad at physicsalive.com. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. But there's an even bigger favor that you can do for me. Tell one colleague about this podcast and share your favorite episode with them. I want to reach every physics teacher that I can, and you can help me do that. And if you've already shared an episode with a friend, thank you so much. Find another colleague, too, that you can also share with. I, I really want to reach as many teachers as possible. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Today's action step, if you found one of these articles to be particularly interesting, go read it. I've put a link in the show notes to all of these articles. You can either scroll down on your podcast app, or you can go to physicsalive.com slash May 2021, and that will take you to, to all these links, and you can check out all these different papers. If you don't have a subscription to The Physics Teacher, there are going to be a variety of ways that you can get a hold of these papers. Um, sometimes if you Google search the, the article title, you may be able to find a PDF that was made available. Uh, if that doesn't work, you can try to access a, a copy through your library, through interlibrary loan. Uh, and if that doesn't work, then try reaching out to the authors themselves, and I bet they would be happy to send you a paper. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. I have some interviews already recorded, and they're just waiting for their chance to hit the airwaves. Until then, happy reading, and be well.